Hello, and welcome back to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. I'm Dr. Julian Brinkley, your host. In today's world, the way people get around is changing rapidly. From the emergence of ride-sharing and electric vehicles to autonomous vehicles and spacecraft, new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we move around our cities and beyond. I believe to understand existing mobility technologies, as well as to imagine what comes next, we must think beyond our understanding of mobility as purely getting from point A to point B, and must instead think about the experience of mobility itself. In this podcast, we will explore the design of mobility technologies with an emphasis on understanding how best to support the human user. We'll be talking to designers, researchers, engineers, and experts in the field about how they design compelling, accessible, and engaging experiences at some of the world's leading mobility companies. So whether you're an industry professional, an educator, or just someone with a passion for mobility, design, UX, and technology, this podcast is for you. Let's get into it. So welcome to Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. Joining us today is Erica Ellis, the Senior Manager and Head of Product Equity Design at Uber, and Brianna Gilmore, Head of Public Policy, Accessibility, and Marginalized Communities at Uber. Erica is a product equity research and design leader whose work is grounded in human-centered design that aims to create equitable experiences for everyone. Before Uber, she was the Inclusive Design Lead at Workday and the Senior User Experience Designer at Pivotal Labs. Brianna is a policymaker, advocate, and educator who has spent her career bridging public health, urban planning, and disability justice. Welcome, Erica and Brianna. I am super excited to have you on Designing for Movement. So thank you very much. How are you all doing today? Good. Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to be here. Okay. So you're both at Uber. As I was thinking about these questions and really trying to focus on introducing you all to the audience and getting to know you better and what you do. Uber is such an interesting and fascinating company to me. And I've followed over the years how they have evolved in terms of people moving and now moving, you know, delivering food and all other, you know, sorts of activities. What originally attracted you to your roles at Uber? Yeah, I can kick that one off. I've been there slightly longer than Brianna has. We can go in order. But the opportunity at Uber was really exciting to me because there was such a huge potential to make an impact, not only on the people that were using our platform, but also policy and the transportation industry holistically. Sometimes this work in equity and, and these types of teams focused on, you know, accessibility, product equity, depending on, you know, where you are, and they can just be performative. The company creates them so that they can check the box. They're not actually looking for a huge amount of impact or accountability from those teams. And at Uber, I saw something very different. This team was very much an investment in a better platform. They knew what it would take for this to be a successful practice at Uber as well. So having built this practice elsewhere, it was really great coming into a company who had a full understanding of what it needed to be successful and investment in doing that as well. And the majority of that groundwork was done by Zach Singleton. He's our head of equity and privacy product. But he ensured that Uber made inclusive design one of its 14 anti-racism commitments in 2020. And is just a huge advocate and strategist within the company. So we have a lot of influence to make changes here across the company, not just within product as well, which is also super important. Erica, was Zach the first person that you met at Uber? Was he the first person? He was not. I actually met my manager first, who's a director within the product design organization. But Zach, it was 
very clear after I spoke to him that he was going to be a leader in this space and that I had a very strong partner on the product side to build something. And that's for folks who are in design are very aware that design and design teams don't necessarily always have the power or influence to make changes. So having a partner in the product area who has been around Uber for a while, who has built teams at Uber in the past, like having that influence and strategy and relationships already embedded was going to be huge for the success of this practice. Right. I think I met Zach in my third interview stage and he was maybe my like fourth interview in the third interview stage. And I think it was after my conversation with Zach where I finally accepted that this was a real job because <laughs> at first I legitimately don't think I believed it, right? Like I come from the advocacy space. I've been a policymaker, an educator. I consider myself a disability advocate. I saw this job posting at Uber and I was like, that's not a real job. They're not actually looking for a disabled person with a decade of advocacy experience who's also an urban planner. It just didn't make sense to me because I'd been looking for this job for years. And then I met my current manager. I met one of our researchers who's done really exceptional work in mobility and micromobility research all over the world. And I met Zach and others. And I realized that this was really exactly what I was looking for. I was looking for a place where I didn't have to sacrifice pieces of my identity. I was frustrated in urban planning and public. I couldn't focus on public health and then frustrated in public health because it lacked an integration of urban planning and then frustrated with both for not allowing me to center disability justice as a function of decoloniality. Because I think decolonization, if that's not really kind of central to an ideological process of the way that you're talking about mobility is really just replicating inequities in our environment. And so I think these like consistent frustrations and then always having to pick and choose between my different disabilities and the way that I show up at a place that I worked at was just constantly frustrated in my career. So this is the first role that I've found in my career in which I feel like I have the freedom to pursue the intersection of my three primary intellectual interests, urban planning, public health, and disability justice, and also bring my full self to the role. And we are so glad you found it. (laughs) (laughs) We are so lucky to have you, Brianna. Eric is my biggest spokesperson. She's my high band inside. I always say I want to be Brianna when I grow up. So, yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting. And it really seems like in having this conversation that there are some overlaps between what you all are doing. And I know we'll explore more of that as we're, you know, kind of talking and discussing what you're doing specifically at Uber. But it's just interesting looking at and discussing like your backgrounds and how you're basically coming to work at, you know, in some sense of the word, similar types of activities, but coming from two different worlds in a sense, some design, some advocacy things like that. How does that translate into what you all do or what you both do on a day-to-day basis in terms of trying to move forward with making Uber a ride-sharing and equitable of a platform as possible? How does your experiences, how do they inform you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis, really? Honestly, this kind of goes back to your first question of like why I came to Uber and why I was attracted to it, because they knew that to be successful in this work of inclusive design specifically for what I was hired to do, you can't just work in design. You can't just work in product. You have to work across everything. So when I looked at the job description for my position, it said working with policy, working with legal, working with comms, like all of these different teams that I hadn't had access before in my prior roles in this type of space because we had been siloed 
And so the idea that all of those silos were going to be broken down was really impressive to me, especially within the job description. Because the things that we're working on, right, like we're battling systems of oppression, we're battling like strategic discrimination across the board. And so if we're going to make progress on any of these things, we have to be attacking them from a systemic and systematic view as well. So being able to work with Brianna in policy, being able to work with our legal team, being able to work across the board with all organizations at Uber, it's really the only way that we can do this work. And as well as bringing in all of those different facets of identity, lived experience, education, you know, it's absolutely imperative to do anything in this space. Yeah, I would say the same. I think working cross-functionally is kind of like where I'm situated most comfortably as an advocate, right? Which is is primary in an education role. And I always say as an advocate and when I'm training other advocates, like you're really looking for pain points. All you're trying to do is create ease where there's currently pain. And a lot of people, when they think about equity and they think about accessibility, they think about a gap that they can't fill because they don't know how to fill And it's causing them a pain point and often increasing friction that's causing tension and they don't know how to alleviate that tension. And so a lot of our internal advocacy is really just about informing, creating some sort of container around that. And if you can make that enjoyable and easy to understand, and also I think foundational to what motivates us to the company. So I always say that like, we really have the same motivations that the disability community has. We really balance the tensions between independence and interdependence, right? We sacrifice privacy to gain safety all the time as disabled people, right? And so this tension as users between riders and drivers, for example, that's kind of core to what it means to be a person who's disabled in the world and the way that we navigate space and we navigate interpersonal relationships. And so I think that when people understand that really the motivations of the disability community are really the same as what motivates Uber, that forces us to drive, to be integrated into the community, to access mobility creatively, to find solutions where the environment hasn't created the solutions for us, that really motivates the conversation around accessibility. All of a sudden, a light turns on where people understand. They say, oh, I am inherently motivated by the same things. This will be easier for me to understand, and it reduces the friction. Interesting. To follow up on that, because I think one of the kind of logical questions out of that becomes, when we think about Uber companies like Uber or ride-sharing companies specifically, what do you think they can do to basically ensure equal access and affordability for those underserved communities? That's a good question. I want to start by acknowledging that there's a persistent myth that ride-share is a luxury of the upper middle class. We know that's not true. So research led by Dr. Ann Brown, published in 2022, indicated that people with low economic capital, they use ride-share in distinct ways and that people without a personal car use rideshare more frequently than car owners, and both rideshare to fill spatial and temporal gaps in transportation, meaning in areas where they can't access public transport or safe micromobility, they can't walk safely when they're leaving a public transportation environment, kind of the first mile, last mile issue, or they need transportation at times that their environments don't afford it. So maybe they work at off hours and they take public transport home at night, but they can't get a bus line to finish that last mile ride. So people in that situation are kind of prime users of rideshare. 
that research has contradicted that myth that rideshare exists for the upper middle class. But that acknowledges an existing transportation gap. Yeah, I think that that's like rideshare is a means of equitable access, which is kind of like what is in your question, Dr. Brickley. Like, how do we ensure that people with these low cash resources, people who travel to work outside of those typical public transit hours, or at least convenient public transit hours, have access to transit, rideshare being an option for that when they need it, especially when something goes wrong, right? And as a person who absolutely adores public transit and takes it all the time, something is always going wrong. (laughs) So it's really nice to have another reliable option out there. And what we know is that rideshare has largely done, it's really enabled folks to access mobility in areas where they may not have previously been able to do that particularly via traditional transit. So planners, policymakers, companies like Uber really need to look at how do we address these gaps. And obviously that takes time, right? Like we are working within huge systems that have been around for decades, potentially centuries. It's going to take a while to make these these changes, but how can cities, agencies, governments, like how can we subsidize rideshare as a way to offer equitable transit to communities and citizens in those areas. Yeah. And so I think what Eric is getting to is really where I think a lot of our policy work sits, right? The solution isn't rideshare and the solution isn't public transport or paratransit. I think it's a combination. It's a both and, right? So we already partner with cities to fill mobility gaps. We partner with health plans to ensure people can access medical care when transportation is a primary barrier. So these are concrete solutions to existing transit gaps, right, to where people have historically struggled to meet their transport needs. I think affordability in terms of equity is a broader socioeconomic question. So if cities don't want to subsidize rideshare transit or bikes or community-ready wheelchairs or micromobility solutions, okay, are you investing otherwise in the socioeconomic well-being of your residents, right? So is ensuring a livable radius from appropriate work a priority for you as a city policymaker? Are you subsidizing childcare and home caregivers? Are you investing in low-income housing and in areas where people actually want to live that are culturally relevant, relevant to work and social ecosystems? So we can't get to affordable rideshare or any sustainable transportation solutions unless planners and cities address these other realities. So we can talk about equitable rideshare all day, but really we exist in that ecosystem, right? And it's a vast majority of people who struggle to afford necessities now, especially in our urban environments. So those people, sure, sometimes use rideshare to get to and from work because the threat of missing a shift jeopardizes their entire livelihood. They use it because it's safer than walking home from the train station a mile away late at night. And they use it because they have scarce time and energy and it's the fastest option. But rideshare, it doesn't thrive because people are desperate and require it. Rideshare is necessary because of that, but that isn't a world that I envision, right? Like me and Eric do not envision a world where rideshare thrives because transportation options don't exist. None of us envision that. We all thrive. And I think the vast majority of businesses thrive. They thrive when people have the resources they need. If all of the people who lived in transport in transportation environments that Uber exists in had all of the resources they need, Uber would thrive. So we're interested in that question regarding equity because we want our communities to thrive. I will say, so I just passed my one year mark at Uber. 
And I tell people all the time that I could easily have this job for the rest of my life, right? Like I'm an endlessly curious person. I'm constantly bored. There are countless challenges to take on that I want to make rideshare more equitable. And I really want Uber to be the platform of our dreams. I think it sounds really corny, but I get very ideological about this, right? Like I think accessibility is safety, it's autonomy, it's freedom of movement, it's vibrant community life. I want that for all of my people. I want caregivers and aging people to find relief. They, I want them to find pleasure beyond isolation. I want people like me with cognitive disabilities to finally have transportation options that don't compromise our executive function. And I really want people with mobility disabilities to secure dignified rides whenever they want as quickly as those of us who are pre-disabled. And I really want my friends with service animals to trust us when we say our policy upholds their rights, right? So like what we want is a transportation system that's free of implicit bias, discrimination, and bodily harm. But we've never experienced a transportation system like that, ever. Like not in the decades since our rights to privacy and community integration were established in law through the ADA. Like I need to dream of that future where this system and we currently don't have a policy framework. We don't have a transportation framework where that exists. So again, we have equity solutions. We exist in this inequitable environment and we're constantly trying to dream of something that's never existed before. And so I think partnering with cities, partnering with community-based organizations to literally productize that dream. I get to dream. I'm the policy person. I get to dream. Eric is the person that has to make it a reality. But if we can productize that solution and work with our partners to build it on a structural level, I'm, that's what's going to keep me here in the long term. Uh, definitely stuck in the weeds a bit more, <laughs> Brianna. But the, that's the dream, right? Like That's why we're both here at Uber. Like Yes, we can make rideshare at Uber more accessible, more dignified, more equitable, but that possibility of designing, creating, and building a better future for how transportation holistically can catalyze opportunities that may not have existed for communities before is why we're here. We want to influence this company, yes. We want to influence tech, yes. But we want to influence everything, right? There is a lot of power within a company like Uber who has disrupted the way the transportation industry, the way of tech even potentially, right? And policy and the gig economy. So the ramifications of our decisions are huge. And we have the possibility to really drive that better future and really improve the way people have access to opportunities. So to follow up on that, you know, we're talking about, you know, how, you know, Uber's thinking around equity and your individual thinking around equity and some of the things that are taking place. What are some of the innovative strategies or initiatives that you and Uber have found to be successful actually in promoting equity? I think that broadly we know that Uber has offered access where people have historically struggled to secure access and not just to mobility, but also to work. And if we think about micromobility, the integration of taxis. I think about this on a few different levels, right? So I think about like early days of Uber in the very design of the app. I think a lot of our accessibility is sort of a happy accident of brilliant engineers who designed base components that were based around functionality that I think are best in class. And this is as a person with a cognitive disability that gets very confused in app environments. Right. And then I think that we had 
design features that were retroactive to consumer demands and also organizational demands. So advocates who came to us and said, for example, you know, there are deaf members of our organization who are earners on your platform, but they need a better way to communicate with users. How can we integrate a productized solution for our earners to make sure that they can communicate, ensure their safety, ensure accessibility on the app? And so those were kind of retroactive solutions. But I think that when we think about innovation, there's a couple ways that I like to think about that. First of all, I talk about accessibility as a, a bridge, right? So it, an accessibility is an intervention between a person and their environment. In terms of disability, accessibility means an intervention between a person with a disability and an environment that wasn't designed for them, okay? When we talk about disability justice and frameworks in general, when I talk about accessibility, what I'm really talking about is safety and perception of safety, autonomy or the degree of independence that I choose to access, and what a lot of folks in the disability justice movement would call self-efficacy, and that's really reliability, but it's personal reliability. So can I interact with this environment and secure the same outcome every time? Can I go into this situation and know that what I do, that I have control over my environment enough to predict the outcome of that environment? And I think Uber is fundamentally different in this capacity from other technology companies because we have an app that drives an experience. And that experience is independence, self-determination, or self-efficacy. You have two users whose needs are equally valuable. You often have an earner or a courier and a rider or an eater. And so I think when we're talking about equity, I think that what we need to address also is that we really don't have frameworks that exist that experiment with that variable. Because as soon as you get to tensions in that variable, you realize that solutions to solving in an equitable environment in that experience creates a hierarchy of needs in terms of equity. And so we're trying to drive really real solutions between our users, between the variables in our experience, while making sure that we're prioritizing the safety and the independence and the self-determination of all of our users, of our drivers and of our riders simultaneously. I know that was a little bit ideological. I think Eric is the more practical person. Maybe she has a very practical answer to that question. I think that was a great answer to that question. I would add on, like in the sense of, of innovation, and, and maybe this is a, a different way of thinking about innovation, but for the product equity team specifically, like, yes, we are building you know, specific product experiences that we will launch to the world, but we're also looking at how we can innovate internally, right? Because historically, people haven't been building products or designing products with accessibility or equity in mind. So we are looking intricately at the way that we work within Uber and how can we raise awareness to the fact that everybody needs to be doing this work. How can we educate people on accessibility, on equity, on different types of discrimination that different communities face of proxies for discrimination and make sure that they know how to integrate that knowledge into their work and how do we change our processes and our systems so that some of this work can even be automatic which it hasn't been historically. And so I know when we think about innovation in tech, it's really like, what's that next shiny thing that we're launching to the world? But a lot of what we're doing too is like revolutionizing, evolutionizing, whatever word you want to use, 
the strategies that we use to actually build those things as well, to ensure that this is sustainable work and that it does start to integrate into every single person's day-to-day because no matter how many Brianna's or Erica's or Zach's or anyone else on our team that there are, like Uber is a huge company and we can't touch everything. We can't ensure everyone is always thinking this way. So we have to build them tools and resources so that they know how to do it on their own. So we touched on a couple things there, but the thing that jumped out to me that was just mentioned was the discussion about safety. So I'm a frequent Uber user, especially when I I have a car here in uh, South Carolina, but when I travel, I use Uber pretty exclusively, you know, even over, you know, taxis or, you know, what have you. And one thing that always strikes me is when I think about things is the concept of safety and what that looks like both for drivers and passengers. So we've done some work. We did some work with the University of Michigan a few years ago where we were basically looking at and exploring how people with visual disabilities specifically use Uber and use uh, ride-sharing services broadly, what that experience looks like, and what is needed to basically create a sense of trust and safety for that uh, user who might have a visual disability. What is some of the work that you all are doing to basically ensure a secure environment, both for the drivers as well as for passengers, especially when we think about passengers with disabilities? That is such a great question. And safety is, I think, one of the foundational elements of equity and accessibility. We have a full safety team here at Uber that exists outside of us but inextricably tied always. And we're doing things at a very basic level around safety, I think particularly for people with disabilities or people who are blind or have low vision, building in accessibility into our design system. So our design system is called FACE and we've been doing a lot of work across that to make sure that every single component that we have, which is basically how our designers and our engineers build our products so that it's reusable, has accessibility baked in. So every single component that's used within the Uber app should have accessibility to a compliance level baked in to that specific component. Of course, how we build with those components can always, you know, change the level of accessibility there. So again, creating a lot of education so that designers and engineers both know how to do that with the components as well. But like to, to your point as well, I use Uber a lot when I travel. I have a car here where I live in Colorado And I share my ride with my spouse every single time. Whether I feel safe or unsafe, I share my ride. It just pops up in that app. As soon as my ride starts, I'm able to share it. So there is a lot of concern and a lot of effort being put into safety across the board. That one, obviously, specifically for riders, we put a lot of effort into right turn only, quote unquote, Um, not only right turns, but generally trying to push drivers to take more right turns because it's statistically safer for them to be doing that. So there is a huge investment across the board going into safety. And of course, just reevaluating the way that, you know, people with disabilities, and again, back to your, you know, blind or low vision individuals, how do they find the car, right? And how do they make sure that they're being dropped off in the right spot? which is one of the really interesting things about Uber that, you know, Brianna hinted towards earlier is that, yes, we live in this digital space because we are a digital platform, but that digital platform allows 
like real world interpersonal interactions. And so making sure that we are considering both sides of those and really leaning into the service design of our platform and not just like, like the digital product design is a really important way that we really start to look at how all of these different scenarios could unfold. Great. So one of the courses that I teach here at Clemson is a course on uh, technology ethics. So one of the topics that I enjoy covering, simply because I find that students are not necessarily overtly familiar with it, is the concept of the digital divide. So the haves and the have-nots in terms of who has access to technology. And as we look at a lot of existing and emerging technologies, a lot of that is basically being driven by the smartphone. So a lot of things are basically designed around mobile access, smartphones, so on and so forth. How can technology be leveraged to bridge this digital divide and make ride-sharing services more accessible to individuals without smartphones or without internet access? Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. So there's a couple of features that I've used really frequently. And I would say one of my motivators for using Uber was my experience. I hadn't used Uber in years. I hadn't used rideshare in years. I was living in places where I didn't need a lot of rideshare. I was able to walk, lived in a small city. And then I moved to Oakland, California and was living with a friend. And I was doing a lot of volunteer work in unhoused communities. And when I say volunteer work, I mean, I had friends who knew activists who were on the streets working with unhoused communities, kind of like, you know, figure out what their needs were, get their needs met, and also do some housing justice work on the streets of Oakland, right? So I spent a bit of time in community with these folks and supporting my unhoused neighbors in Oakland. And we tackled every possible issue of transportation inequity, right? So like from the seniors who were living on the streets without smartphones, who didn't speak English, they weren't tech savvy, a lot of them were recent sexual assault survivors because they were living in informal settlements on the streets without any protection from the city or otherwise. They didn't want to be in the back of a car alone, right? So everything from that to the young people who were living on the street working full time, they were trying to save enough money to get back into housing, maybe get an aging parent who was also on the street with them or a child back into housing with them. They were desperate to get to work on time, but needing to leave their neighborhoods and risk territorial violence, often gang violence, just to get to a storefront with a real address. And there are several million of our community members just in this country living in this reality daily. As I said, Dr. Brinkley, so I'm in Nairobi right now at this disability rights conference, and I was speaking with a blind user who lives in an informal settlement right outside of Nairobi. And he takes three different modes of transportation to get to work every day. And as much as the cultural difference is present, and there's so much information that we need in terms of data that drives decision-making at the local level in a place like Nairobi, I could have copy and pasted a conversation that I had with a blind Uber user in the United States. And it was an exact transcript of the conversation that I had with him about the way that he navigated his environment, the way that for example, the integration of financial services in the Uber app really reduced a safety risk for him in managing cash in the way that he accessed transportation before. He said he was a victim of theft and violence when always trying to call taxis as a blind person. You know, he talked about the barriers in his own neighborhood and not being able to ping an exact address or having to walk for long distances to get a taxi or a matatu or a boda boda to be able to get to work and how Uber fundamentally changed that. 
But he also said that the things that we hear in the US all the time is that an Uber shows up and they're across the street and I don't have any safe way to navigate across the street. Or I get into my car and I have a negative interaction perhaps with the driver, or I'm just on a phone call, or I want to be left alone and I have a right to be left alone. And people with disabilities are constantly surveilled in our environment. So I think that kind of like perception of safety is also very important. And what this user said is that he... Instead of taking an Uber X, he took a Boda Boda, which is a motorcycle taxi in Nairobi, which as a blind person, you know, I can't imagine, I'm not a blind or low vision person, and I can't imagine how dangerous that might feel in terms of his physical safety. And yet for him, it gave him the peace of mind because he didn't have to worry about an interaction with a driver that would drain his executive function. He doesn't have to talk when he's on the back of a motorcycle, and he doesn't have to worry about getting an Uber X driver to turn around on the street. And so a motorcycle option for him, it was driven by his independence, like his choice in terms of what was the safest option for him, because he knew that he could control his physical environment on the back of a motorcycle to ensure his safety. And so I think that these are like core tensions in the experience, which is that you have multiple intersections of safety and kind of multiple variables that people who are vulnerable in our communities come up against, that Uber has solved for many of them, cashless payments, you know, demand-driven rides, excellent maps, really safe experiences, share my ride feature. So all of the safety features built into the app, but we haven't solved for some of those, I think, greater issues of perception of safety when you get to the multi-access needs of vulnerable people in our communities. Great answer. That's really enlightening. So I know we're right up at time. So I do want to ask, I always traditionally ask a couple of closing questions. So I will have one closing question for each of you. So for Erica, who in the world of inequity research and design would you most like to take to lunch? I have two answers. I cannot choose. Two Black women in the design world here in the U.S. Antoinette Carroll, she is based in St. Louis and has created the Creative Reaction Lab, which is a company that is focused on equity-centered community design. They hold a lot of workshops. They consult with businesses, but they really focus on changing society and making sure that individuals are involved in solutions that are designed for them. So co-design, participatory design, how do we bring community members into the fold and allow them to solve their own problems instead of people within these companies or within these governments, like interpreting their needs or thinking that they know what they need more so than those individuals. Um, So really focusing on the expertise of those individuals with those lived experiences and bringing them into the process and allowing them to be the designers. And then the second person, because I'm sorry, I could not pick just one, Vivian Castillo, who is a brilliant researcher. She has started along with another woman of color, Humanity Centered, which is a community business. They offer a lot of workshops, both free and paid. They focus a lot on again, equity-centered community design, but in particular, the way that people exist within the workplace who are doing this type of work because we are living other people's trauma. We are reliving our own trauma. We are fighting for our own identities day in and day out when we're doing this work within whether that be government, NGOs, advocacy work, or within corporations like Uber, right? We are 
constantly in, not in contradiction, let's see, how do I really want to say that? <laughs> we are constantly battling the systems that we also exist within, which can be emotionally draining, it can be harmful. So how do you show up in this work? How do you make it sustainable? And how do you ensure that the people around you are also able to thrive and be safe in this work? So those are kind of, I think, two sides of a very important piece of this work, like the work itself and making sure that we're doing it right with the people who should be doing the work. And then taking care of ourselves and taking care of our community and our coworkers in the process of that. So that everyone doing this doesn't burn out and quit and leave (laughs) because that would be the absolute worst thing that could happen is that we have less people doing this work and pushing equity forward. Sorry, long answer to a very simple question. No, great answer to a uh, simple question. And for you, Brianna, so as we were preparing for the show, I was really struck by, you know, as someone who works in the uh, accessibility space and trying to design assistive tech, and working, you know, broadly in this area about basically how you really evolved over time to the position, you know, your career goals and things of that nature. How did you get, you mentioned that you could potentially do this job for perpetuity forever. How did you get to this point? What advice would you give to people who are just starting their careers, you know, who want to do something similar? Such a sweet question. And I realize in answering it that I just like, I'm coming off as so ideological in this podcast. I'm a very practical person, I swear. I'm asked to, you know, oftentimes friends will, you know, send me their peers or colleagues and who are going through career transitions or at the outset of their career who have this question of sort of like, I don't understand your career. I don't understand the choices that you've made. How have you done what you've done? And I can get very concrete with people. I'll edit resumes. I'll tell you exactly what size company you should look for, what kind of boss you should look for, the reasons that I made certain decisions. I can get very concrete. But I really thought about, I think, two questions that have driven my decisions in terms of my career trajectory. And those are, what's the thing that I can't live with and how can I be satisfiable? And they're kind of the inverse questions of each other. So the first question, what's the thing that I can't live with? What is intolerable to me? What's infuriating? What do you most want to change? What keeps you up at night? And then how can you figure out how to be satisfiable with that thing that you can't tolerate? And that's a question that Adrienne Marie Brown asks. I'm sure you know who Adrienne Marie Brown is, Dr. Brinkley calls herself a pleasure activist. She wrote this brilliant book, Pleasure Activism, Emergent Strategy, talks about the way that natural systems can really inform our advocacy. And she asks this question, how can I be satisfiable? Meaning at the end of the day, how can I know that I dedicated myself fully, in my case, in my work, to this thing that I cannot tolerate? And so when I think in terms of disability justice, I think that's really guided my career decisions. And even in working a company like Uber, a lot of my colleagues haven't really understood that decision. And I know that from an advocate community perspective, even from a governance perspective, the idea that you could drive justice in tech isn't necessarily fully respected yet. But at the end of the day, I need to answer that question for myself. Have I done enough for my community? Am I satisfied with what I've done for my community so far? And I haven't found that 
in super governance, in state government, in federal government, in nonprofit work, in public health organization work, in education, or in public health. I will say that the vast majority of days I end my day at Uber and I don't want to close my computer because I'm so excited about the work that I get to do to drive equity for my people. And so that I think is the ultimate answer to the question. And I think even at the outset of your career where you're really navigating some very specific questions in terms of how to move forward, how to make that first career step. If you can answer those two questions in a way that satisfies you, you'll always make the right decision in your career, whether to leave or to stay or to move in a different direction. Another important thing here, which I think Brianna is saying beautifully, but I kind of want to like put a little bow on it as well, because it's a little bit tangential to what she's talking about, is don't be afraid to pave your own path, right? Like, I graduated with a degree in print graphic design. Like in college, I was binding books by hand. Nothing really related to what I'm doing now. Brianna thought that she would never be able to find a job like this, integrating all of her passions into one single position, right? Don't take no for an answer necessarily. Like know that you can create your own role. Like I did where I worked last. Like I pitched a role and I got to create it and make it what I wanted it to be. Like the opportunities are endless as long as you are passionate about it to Brianna's point, right? Like what do you really need to do? Like what do you want to make change for? And continuing to do it over and over again. No is just someone's opinion. So don't let it necessarily be yours. That's a perfect way to uh, wrap up our conversation. Well, once again, thank you for being on Designing for Movement, the UX for Mobility podcast. It's been my pleasure to host you both. And we'll go ahead and wrap up. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you for having us, Dr. Frankly. We really look forward to getting to know you better. And then we hope that you reach out for us for any more questions or um, you know ways to partner in the future. Sounds great. Definitely. We'll do that. Absolutely. That's all for today's episode for the UX for Mobility podcast. Remember to subscribe to our podcast to stay up to date on the latest episodes and feel free to leave us a review to let us know what you think. And a special thanks to our guests for sharing their expertise with us and to our listeners for tuning in. Join me again next time for more exciting discussions on designing for movement, the UX for Mobility podcast.